The Journal presents the Good Information Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Good Information Podcast, a series where the Journal gets to grips with 15 major topics that our audience has told us are impacting their daily lives and focusing their minds on the future. I'm Susan Daly, Managing Editor of The Journal, where the Good Information Project has been giving readers the opportunity to engage directly with editors and journalists on these issues. With you, we've looked at their impact on Ireland and on our place in the wider EU. In this episode, we are asking, how do we get a sustainable, equitable healthcare system? Will Ireland ever fix its evergreen healthcare woes? From overflowing emergency departments to a recruitment crisis of healthcare professionals, from a deterioration in trust in delivery of services, and to children and vulnerable people left languishing on waiting lists, are we all beyond the point of tolerance? There have been attempts to fix what is often deemed unfixable. But why haven't these strategies stuck? Would we even start here? What kind of models from Europe could we try out? We'll answer these questions and more, but here's what you had to say on the issue. Remove the power of consultants. Stop public consultants working in the private sector. Time to define and protect public hospitals as public. Stop private care in public hospitals. I'm currently waiting on an MRI on my back. I've already had two operations and now I've bone spurs on L4 and L5 discs, which has caused major nerve damage. So I'm in constant pain and unable to do anything with my kids as a result. It could be up to 18 months to get an MRI and then you have to get an appointment with your consultant to get the results. So you're looking at two years approximately. It's a complete farce of a system. It's all about how much money you have and that will depend on how quick you're seeing. Nurses' pay is paltry, 31,000 to 47,000. Yes, nights, etc. yield some overtime, but at a cost. Nurses are highly skilled and qualified, and most have master's level postgrad working in speciality areas such as ICU. Dublin is particularly void of skilled nurses who want to stay working due to crazy rent, childcare, etc. Take a look at the Australian model of healthcare and emulate what they do. And maybe our amazing healthcare staff will come back and work here instead of abroad. Minor injury units in towns that don't have one, such as Letterkenny, staffed by advanced nurses and allied healthcare staff, such as radiographers who could report in x-rays as well as take them. This way, fractures and minor injuries could be taken away from the main emergency departments, leaving them to deal with more serious issues. So what's the wider view? We're joined by Good Information Project producer Carl Kinsler, who has been looking at public perceptions of our healthcare system. A very mixed bag, according to an independent poll commissioned by our project. Despite tens of billions spent over the years, attitudes towards the Irish healthcare system remain starkly negative. Regular controversies over working conditions for healthcare professionals, years-long waiting lists for vital procedures and exorbitant costs for projects such as the National Children's Hospital mean that Ireland's healthcare system is not seen as a success, but as something that leaves the public in a permanent state of worry. The Good Information Project teamed up with independent polling company Ireland Thinks to establish how confident Irish people feel about the system in place to protect them when they are at their most vulnerable. 
In a damning indictment, 65% of respondents said that they believe the Irish healthcare system is worse than it was five years ago. 27% say they believe it's the same, and a paltry minority of 7% believe that it has improved. This trend held firm across all age demographics, with both old and young expressing pessimism over the direction of the healthcare service. While most groups overwhelmingly said that services are worsening, respondents earning an income of €80,000 or more were more varied on the matter. 48% of them said that services are getting worse, while 41% said they were about the same as they were five years ago, suggesting that there are obvious economic factors at play. Still, even fewer than 1 in 10 high earners believe the healthcare system is getting better. However, there is some suggestion that this negative attitude comes down to public perception rather than personal experience. Only 7% rate their overall experience with the Irish Healthcare Service as very good, but a further 30% have rated it as good, and 26% rate it as neither good nor bad, suggesting an overall positive or neutral experience in the Irish healthcare system. 11%, however, did note that their own personal experience was very poor. Respondents also showed positive sentiment when asked about how accessible their GP was. 70% said that they find their GP easy to access most of the time or all of the time, and a further 14% saying some of the time. Still, that leaves just under 1 in 6 Irish people who have significant problems when it comes to accessing a GP. 5% said they did not have easy access at all when it came to getting their GP. This problem is more pronounced in Dublin and in Leinster than elsewhere, with around a third of the population in either region saying that they only have access to a GP sometimes, rarely, or not at all. Similarly, the younger people are, the less likely they are to have convenient access to a GP, with 15% of those between 18 and 24 saying that they never have convenient access to a GP. The poll results reflect a healthcare scenario that many in Ireland are familiar with. If you get lucky, it's entirely plausible that you could have a relatively straightforward experience with the Irish healthcare system. Unfortunately, there remain far too many people who are cut out of access, who are having bad experiences, and who ultimately believe that the system is deteriorating. Thanks, Carl. Now let's get to the heart of a perennial pain point in the health system. I'm joined by Noteworthy's investigative health reporter, Maria Delaney, who spent weeks looking at the state of Ireland's emergency departments and what systemic changes needed to get them running smoothly. Welcome, Maria. Our central question in looking at healthcare has been how to build a sustainable and equitable healthcare system. One of the places where equity is on display is the average emergency department, because in Ireland, if you have a serious health emergency, it is to the public hospital emergency department that you will be sent to be looked after. So if it's the most universal experience we have, it is probably reflecting the health of the system as a whole. So how is that looking, Maria? So patients and healthcare professionals say it's in crisis. And one of the measures we often hear about is trolley numbers, and they're recorded by the Irish Nurses and Midwives Association or organisation INMO every weekday. And since the pandemic, so there was a drop in the pandemic due to people not presenting in emergencies or um, not having, I suppose, overcrowding in the system in terms of uh, surgeries are cancelled. So since then, there has been a rise, and it actually peaked in April, the 21st of April. 126 people in University Hospital Limerick, but it has been kind of rising nationally. But that's not the only statistic pointing to a crisis. So recent UK research showed that long emergency department wait times caused thousands of excess deaths and significantly more than actual road traffic incidents. So latest data found that over over 75s wait, were waiting 20 hours on average um, in some emergency departments. 
And if you wait for more than six to eight hours, it has been shown that it can cause excess deaths. So over that, 20 hours average is absolutely way beyond the point of tolerance and in fact is is risk of death situation territory, right? So patients and healthcare professionals say it's in crisis. And one of the measures we often hear about are trolley numbers and they're recorded by the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation or the INMO every weekday. And they dropped during the pandemic. So they had been rising before that and they dropped because there was cancelled surgeries and there was more kind of capacity in the hospital and people weren't presenting to emergency departments as much. But since then, they've been rising steadily and um, kind of nationwide. And they peaked in University Hospital Limerick on the 21st of April at 126 people. And University Hospital Limerick is one of those hospitals that is often try on, high on the trolley count. And you went down there, Maria, to look at the situation. You spoke to patients, but you spoke also to hospital management about how that's laid out, how they tackle this and also to um, to the healthcare professionals working on the ground there. Yes, yeah, so there, like I spoke to the INMO lead there, and like she was saying that um, it's extremely distressing for patients, and um, they leave their dignity at the door, is what they she said. And um, I suppose hospital management, um, they spoke to me for a number of hours actually, and I suppose one of the things the things that they were saying is that they know what the problem is. Again, um, they were talking about bed capacity and when you think about it like if they have 126 people on trolleys um, th- that's over a fifth of the whole hospital capacity on top of the hospital that's already full so it's it's a, a lot of um, extra beds that they would need and they are um, building a a, u- a new unit there um, and they're also hoping to build another so there there will be um, I think there's 96 extra beds that they're building that hopefully come on same stream soon and they will also be building another unit of that soon um, and I suppose one of the things is that University Hospital Limerick has been in the news a lot because it has been historically very high trolley numbers and um, Minister Stephen Donnelly has also spoken out about sending an expert team down there and hospital management at the time when I was there had submitted a, a plan to the HSC um, which they were kind of refining to to try and solve this problem. Okay and hospital managers were, were quite open about the issues the challenges and how much they were working towards it. Um, there is I suppose to go back to the wider picture again the emergency department figures it's not it's not the only statistic pointing to a crisis the trolley numbers would that be right to say yeah so there are um other other statistics and i suppose when even when i was speaking to hospital management in limerick um they they didn't use trolley numbers they had their own okay. system of trolley numbers and and i suppose they'd use more emergency department wait times but even those have been shown um that like latest data has shown that over 75 they're waiting um, 20 hours on average in some emergency departments. And I suppose the issue with waiting long in, in emergency departments is there's actually an increased risk of um, death that like where you mightn't have died otherwise. Um, so recent UK research show that long emergency department wait times cause thousands of excess deaths in the UK and significantly more than road traffic collisions and actually um, it has been in, in the Joint Oireachtas Committee recently um, they, it's said that there is an average of eight hours in emergency departments and I suppose if you're sicker that's probably longer because you won't be treated as quickly so 
Yeah, so I suppose the issue there is that there is a risk of excess death. Okay, and for older people in particular to hear that kind of average waiting time just seems off the charts. It's not even about a trolley. It's like, can I be seen before this? They're already there for an urgent reason. And I suppose it is extremely distressing. Is there something to, I I mean, to talk about beyond the patients? What is it like to work there on the front line? Yeah, so I, like that's the thing. Like I, I suppose when you're talking about patients, like again, if you go back to Limerick, and um, there are campaigners there that say they feel utterly failed by politicians, government, and the health service, with actually some patients afraid to attend due to overcrowding. So obviously that's a, a big issue if you need to attend. But as you're saying, it's not only patients; it's also workers. And Professor Chris Luke spoke of the trauma to staff when he told me that he said he you're aching, you're literally. You literally feel everybody's pain in front of you. The pain is so vast that you kind of implode. You get dreadful moral distress that comes from not being able to give the compassion, the kindness that you're bursting to deliver. That's extremely powerful stuff and it it goes to speak a lot to what it's like to be on the front line, as they say, for healthcare professionals and possibly about retention in that area. And that crisis situation is an annual headline that we do see. And maybe we get a bit I suppose, numb to it in some ways. But one would imagine then that successive governments have tried strategies to fix it. What do you know has been done to tackle the issue? So every expert in emergency medicine spoke to us about patient flow. And I suppose to understand overcrowding, you need to understand patient flow. And it's the importance of patient movement through the hospital. So coming in through the emergency department and either going out again through the emergency department, if you have something like a minor injury or going through the hospital. And it also means that people in the hospital need to move through the hospital and out of it. So to solve this, um, as emergency consultant Dr. Mick Malloy put it to me, the solution is as simple as ABC acute bed capacity and obviously staff alongside that bed capacity. So successive, successive governments, as you're saying, not only knew about the issue, but also knew how to solve it. So in 2002, there was a capacity review during Michal Martin's tenure as Minister for Health. And it found that bed occupancy levels were unacceptably high in the major hospitals and recommended between 2,800 and 4,300 extra acute beds. And the difference there is that if you add maybe extra outpatient capacity or GP capacity, that'll kind of take some of those beds away or long term patient like um, nursing home care. And the government at the time committed to 3,000 extra beds by 2011. Do we know how they did on that, Maria? I'm assuming we are not there yet. No. So instead of the extra 3000 beds by 2011, there was actually a drop of over 1100 inpatient beds. And that continued to drop until the following year. So that's 2012 to the lowest ever point at 10,400 beds. So where are we now then? Because that's 2012. Please tell me things have improved. So since then, there have been incremental increases um, and we're at the same level now as we were in 2009. So um, but obviously since then, there's been a 550,000 extra population. So we had another capacity review actually in 2018 and that recommended. So at current levels, we need an extra one between 1,200 and 4,950 extra beds, again, depending on the other services that are in place. And that's by 2031. So at the current pace, um, so there has been kind of what the government would say significant investment in um, kind of hospital beds in the last while. And there's been quite kind of 500 since 2018. 
So at the current pace, we'd see 1,800 extra by 2031 if that investment keeps up. I suppose there is a worry now with talks of recession and things like that, if that will keep up. But the Department of Health told me that they have provided an additional investment of 1.1 billion in budget 2021, and that will be maintained in budget 2022, and a further 77 million will be invested in the 2021-2022 winter plan. In your in-depth piece for the Good Information Project on our healthcare cycle, Maria, you looked to Europe to see what might be working there and what might work here. Could you give me an example? Yeah, so um, when you, I suppose the first thing is if you compare Ireland to Europe, Ireland has one of the lowest proportion of hospital beds per person compared to other EU countries. So capacity in some other EU countries isn't actually an issue. So, um, in fact, recent research found that during the pandemic, staff shortages were one of the reasons that ICU had issues with capacity. Um, and I spoke to Julianne Winkleman from the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, and she's one of the co-authors of that research. And she said that in Belgium, the Czech Republic and Germany, an increase in ICU beds actually proved difficult, um, according to the research. And there was a lack of ICU nurses rather than, I suppose, an issue with um, bed capacity. And she's actually based in Germany, and that is the country with the highest bed capacity in the EU. And because of that, they actually have issues with low staff to bed ratio. And it's nurse to bed ratio, that's in fact one of the lowest in the EU. And she said that yeah, they actually have some of the issues that Ireland has in, in terms of not as much as Ireland, but some overcrowding in the emergency departments and people arriving in emergency departments um, and also people not kind of staying too long in hospitals. So they have those issues and they kind of have an over-reliance on hospital care. OK, useful example there. Thanks for coming in, Maria. We'll give the last word to Peggy McGuire, Director of the European Institute of Women's Health. She sat down with me for a live fireside chat and explained how the EU has made a change to include women and older people in clinical trials and why that is so, so important. The terminology now is women as educators and women as part of the decision-making process. And I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of developed over the last 25 years, I think, now. And then the other issue was um, the fact that ageing was becoming an important issue in Europe at that time. The whole demographics was changing. And what we decided to do was to do a report on midlife and older women's health and to highlight the issues that women of that age face, such as um, osteoporosis, depression, the whole area of the menopause, where there's a huge change for women, and also the, the lack of pension, the lack of um, pay, the, the whole pay disparity issues that were there at the time. And it's interesting, we've just actually finished revising um, that report um, last year in 2021, and it's amazing that the silly issues are still there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Information Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Adrian Carty with research by Carl Kinsler and additional journalism from the Good Information Project team. Go to thejournal.ie to find out more about the entire Good Information Project and email us at goodinformation@thejournal.ie with your feedback and questions. If you want to hear more episodes in this series, find us at the Good Information Podcast on the Journal app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament.